Welcome to Lobster Brain, the podcast that shows you what lobsters can teach you about rewiring your brain. Why lobsters? Lobsters fight to see who becomes top lobster. If they win, their brains change to embrace their new status. And if they lose, their brains change too to cope with that change in hierarchy. It's called neuroplasticity. As humans, we can rewire our brains too. So what are the turning points that highly successful people go through to reach top lobster status in the human world? In this podcast, you'll find out. I'm Danny Donerkey. And I'm Lisa Morton. And in this episode of Lobster Brain, you're going to hear from Biet Simkin. So Biet is a musician. She's a spiritual guide to some of the leading lights of Hollywood. She's a best-selling author of a book called Don't Just Sit There. She's done events with Russell Brand and many other famous people. And she's had the ability to sell out Madison Square Garden. So that's the size of Biet. There's probably 10, 20,000 people in Madison Square Garden that are going to her meditation events. On the face of it, Biet appears to be incredibly different to our last guest, Rodney Marsh. She's American, she's spiritual. Her dad was a shaman, so she seems steeped in that world. But Danny, you said before that you think Biet and Rod share a lot of similarities. Why is that? Yeah, it was funny, Lisa. Listening to Biet, it smacked me in the face because that she reminds me of him in many ways. And the first one is that they've got this unshakable level of self-confidence. Rod, as our listeners know, he's absolutely 100% confident in who he is and he's unashamedly himself. When we listen to Biet, you'll get the same kind of idea. I think I think her aim is to help 5 million people, or is it 5 billion people? It wouldn't surprise me if it was 5 billion So it's that kind of Rodney Marsh confidence that we're talking about here. And the the other thing is that she obviously had had a lot of early trauma in her childhood. And, you know, it's a similar theme to Rodney that that her strength and her vibrancy came out of that trauma, really. As you know, I'm, I'm very familiar with meditation. My dad taught me when I was probably about five or six. So I share many of her experiences with meditation. But the thing that I really love about Biet is that it's not about sitting there being like a monk. She's a badass and she helps people live a more fulfilling life in in many ways that you wouldn't expect otherwise. What is your experience, Lisa, of of meditation? Not very good at it. (laughs) (laughs) My mind wanders. I do... When I do focus and I do it, I tend to do it in January when I kind of go, right, I'm setting my intentions and I meditate in January and then forget for the rest of the year. But what I do like to do is I like to be very present and I can make myself present and be very mindful about what's going on around me, even like in the day, like I'll think about how wonderful the environment feels or, you know, walking through the city, I'll be, I'll feel everything really deeply. And what really appealed to me about the way Biet approaches this is that she talks about divided focus. So your meditation and your sense of being can actually focus on different things. And that kind of really appealed to me. Our listeners will hear a practice that she does, which I thought was a game changer. Yeah. And I think what you say is spot on, Lisa, and it's Biet all over. She's helping people be more present in life and not just sit on a yoga mat and meditate for half an hour a day and then not impact your life. And as our listeners are going to find out, she is absolutely hilarious as well. (laughs) She really is, yeah. I do somatic work. I do breath work. I do meditation. I sit in silence. I go to retreats. I do personal development work. Blah, blah, blah. Like the list is endless. And even with all that effort, it's still not like, you know, it's not like I'm running through the fields naked with my tits in the air 24 hours a day just being like, it's all being revealed to me at all times. (laughs) I think that's good news for our listeners. They don't have to take their shirts off and run around the field naked when they're enlightened. Uh, But as they're going to find out, Biet's going to show them lots of practical ways of living a happier, more fulfilling life while keeping their clothes on, I guess. (laughs) Just for our listeners, just a couple of terms. She speaks about ayahuasca, which is a plant medicine, and also somatic practices. That just means certain practices like yoga that kind of traverse the mind-body continuum and Biet speaks a lot about her addiction to heroin 
and overcoming that and also the tragic loss that she's experienced in her life. So when we sat with her back in December, we felt it right that Biet talked through this adversity that she, like all our top lobsters, have experienced and used to rewrite their story. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful, you know, framing and uh, life gives us the great opportunity sometimes, right? Like, I don't think I'm unfortunate that I've been given a very tragic childhood, a very difficult beginning, because to me, it seems very holistic what's happened since then. So, um, yeah, came here, immigrated my family when I was born, like a month after they came here from Russia, running away from persecution there. And then everything was going to be really beautiful. My dad was this shaman. They were going to create an ashram. But then everyone started to die. My mom died when I was six. Two weeks later, my grandma died. And it just kind of was a subsequent list of funerals after that for a while. And uh, I was a musician and an artist. So I just took to making art with that. And when I was 18, I got signed to Sony, Sony Music, and was, you know, toured around in limos and made beautiful music. But I was an alcoholic, you know, for anyone who's listening who has that problem. And I, I just didn't deal with reality well. And I felt like even though I had all this spiritual stuff under my belt from my father's teachings and the work that I had studied from the time I was a child, the pain that I was in on a somatic level and the trauma was just too much for me to bear. And so I really loved alcohol, cocaine, heroin. And inside of that journey, I feel like I kind of lost my way. And luckily for me, or I don't know who else is listening and can relate, but when I lose my way, shit starts to get really loud. And so inside of me losing my way, I had a daughter who died of sudden infant death syndrome. My house burnt down. And I had a near-death experience where my uterus was breaking down and I was almost dead in a hospital. Uh, my best friend hung himself. And then finally, my father had a heart attack and died at the age of 67. So, And that all happened within kind of like a year and a half, two years. And uh, that led me to 14 years ago where I became sober. Now, I'm not suggesting that anyone listening to this becomes sober or that you need to. I personally was a heroin addict. So there's a big difference. You know, if you can drink normally, mazel tov, like happy for you. That was not my story. And when I got sober, I returned to my father's work and I made it my own. And my career took off like a wildfire. I actually decided to fuse the worlds of music, meditation, and the art world. I started doing events in art galleries and ended up doing huge events at the Museum of Modern Art and Sundance Film Festival, and ended up creating this completely new way of sharing meditation with the world. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. And the way you describe that, some of our listeners may feel that that was an easy process, but obviously finding peace isn't a peaceful process. So how was that for you? How was that transformation? It was amazing. I mean, I, I don't think, I don't regret any part of it. I don't, I wouldn't call it easy, but I wouldn't say it was hard because I do believe when we turn to our destiny, everything gets really held. And so I felt like I was really taken care of and I felt like I was happy um, in a way that is indescribable and and a happiness that I never had when I was drinking and using heroin, which is ironic because heroin is phenomenal for annihilating feelings. But the problem is, is that that rainbow of feelings that you get when you're sober or when you're following your destiny is so much richer. And so I felt very satisfied and very filled by the rainbow of experiences that I was then able to have. And, you know, and it was just, it wasn't all wild success, although it was. I mean, I met the man of my dreams. I now have a family. I have a four-year-old. I'm pregnant right now. I'll be giving birth to a baby girl in February. And my career, like I went from rags to riches. I became a best-selling author. I just did a huge event with Russell Brand in England. We're going to do another one this coming summer. I have courses coming out. I work with people one-to-one. Like my work is just flourishing, and I've been published in every magazine and newspaper. So it's been fun, you know, to see what, 
what I call God, and I'm not religious, but the universe or that energy that, um, that creates life is capable of. And for me, that process was me stepping aside so that I could see what was possible. It's an amazing transformation, Biat. Do you still have difficulties now or is your life completely blissful? I sure do. Um, my difficulties are very different today. I don't ruin people's lives. I don't cheat on my partner. I don't sleep with people I don't know. I don't steal and shoplift. I don't end up in jail cells. I'm not a prostitute. So there's a lot of things that are like much easier. Today, my problems look much smaller. Like I'll email someone and they won't email me back right away. And I'll find myself, you know, irate because of that. Or I will want something to happen and then it won't happen. Like I had a huge event planned for Madison Square Garden a few years ago that got canceled three weeks before it happened. And I was so excited to do that. And, but I allow those types of events to be moments of enlightenment for me because there's nothing more exciting than like losing the opportunity to perform at Madison Square Garden and feeling like you're high as a kite in terms of like bliss and connectivity to your body and to your soul while that news is being delivered, you know, and it's just such a, I find it to be so joyful to be on earth and to have the pleasure of all the pain and the, I'm about to have a C-section, you know, in February. Nothing fun about that, you know, needle in the spine, cutting you open while you're conscious, shaking, and then they're like sewing you back up, putting your organs back in your body. Like I could totally skip it, would love to skip it, but the universe is like, here you're on earth and, you know, this is the deal here. So with that, when you said with the Madison Square Garden event that you still felt blissful, was that because you felt that that's happening for a reason? It's bringing you another opportunity? Is that why you can deal with that? Something that a lot of people would feel as a massive disappointment? I think it's because I allowed myself to feel the disappointment fully and I felt so sad and I felt the loss. And then I asked myself, didn't I already know that this was going to fall through? And the truth is I, I did. I had an intuitive sense. You know how when you, like for anyone who's like single or whatever, when you like have a crush on someone, you can kind of tell like if they don't like you, you know? And so when it is revealed to you that they don't like you, you're kind of like upset, but you're also like, I knew that, you know, I knew. And so I knew and, and I felt like there's no such thing as time. And there was this ability to relax and sense like, just as well as I knew that this Madison Square Garden opportunity was going to fall through, I also know that I am slated for even more greatness on this planet, even more effect, and I will touch the hearts of millions of people. So what does it matter whether this little event happens or doesn't happen? And remembering that these little things can't stand in the way of that. And also remembering that nothing will stand in the way of me dying. Because I think a lot of us do things that are triumphant or successful because we want to avoid the feeling of grief that we feel that of our inevitable mortality. And for me, just accepting on a daily basis that my death is a part of all of this. And so is the death of my children and my husband. Like, it's all coming, hopefully not before I die, but, you know, it's coming one day. And then just living with that grief and having it be a part of all my joy rather than being like, I'm going to be so rich and so skinny and so hot that I'll never feel anything and then I'll never die, which, <laughs> as we know, doesn't work at all. I think it's a, it's a great point about feeling because there's this idea that you meditate and you're in this complete bliss state and these feelings don't happen to you and people can kind of deny them. So how do, you, how do you help people who don't feel things fully to feel them more? Well, I founded a breathwork system and a somatic system that for me, the somatic practice that I've created is the pinnacle of experiencing life as it is. So for instance, the other night I had a feeling of shame. Shame is one of my least favorite emotions. I don't know if you guys can relate, but like to me, shame is like the one shame, disappointment or two and yeah, those are like, ugh, like I really don't like those. Um, even sadness I find more palatable than shame. Anyway, so here was this night I was feeling shame. I had said something. I regretted it, blah, blah, blah. And then 
Um, I did my somatic practice, which takes about 20 minutes. This is the guided by Biet somatic practice. It'll be released in my upcoming course if anyone wants to scoop that. Or if you work with me privately, I actually do a much more in-depth version of that. But when I took myself through it, what happened was not only was the feeling of shame completely eradicated by the end of the experience, but also I was given a message of my next work of art and what it was meant to look like what mediums I was supposed to use, what images I was supposed to bring into this work of art. I'm an artist as well. And so this was so exciting to see that the shame in my body, when I used the somatic practice to actually experience that shame, was a message. And so rather than running from shame or pretending I don't feel it or denying that it exists, I actually utilize it as a messenger and say to it, not literally, what are you trying to tell me? But I do this specific set of somatic practices. And at the end, sometimes I'm given instructions. We've spoken to a lot of people who have achieved a lot in life. You know, they're elite athletes or high-performing business people or, or something like that. And they've all kind of spoken about having this hard um, edge that protects them from life and from feeling. And what you're, what you're describing, it sounds like it's a million miles away from their experience of life. They've just kind of bulldozed their way through it. Um, so how, how could we help people like that? You know, the beautiful thing is we bulldoze till we can't bulldoze anymore, right? So bulldozing works till it doesn't. For me, heroin was my bulldoze. Like for me to use heroin and cocaine is the way I bulldoze through massive loss, massive pain, massive insecurity, massive doubt, lack of faith in, in what I call God. I'm not religious. Um, and I bulldozed because I needed that leather jacket. I needed the persona. I needed something so I wouldn't kill myself. And I believe that whoever you're speaking about needs that bulldozing, but one day it stops working. And you can't help someone until it stops working. So if you're talking to someone who's bulldozing effectively there's no point in bringing up to them hey you know you could feel your feelings because they're going to be like fuck <laughs> that i'm not interested in that i'm doing great here not feeling my feelings and i i'm not a big fan of feelings that shit's schmaltzy and sentimental and i don't want to go there it's much safer and it looks much better i believe when someone finally hits the hits the bottom for some of us, hitting a bottom is really bad, like for me. Others hit a bottom because they're just feeling a little crappy all the time or they're noticing that they're irritable or maybe they're ruining their key relationship like with their partner, something like that. And then it becomes intolerable to them. That's when they seek a spiritual solution. That's when someone like me comes into play and they say, who can I find that can teach me modalities that will help me to better cope with reality than what I've been doing. But until you reach that point, there's really nothing for it, right? So, but once you reach that point, you need to be willing to go to any lengths and desperate to get weird. Because I would say actually finding spiritual enlightenment looks weird, looks funny, doesn't look cool. It, it requires a lot of weird effort that it is a lot very much counterintuitive to what the ego would have us do. You know, it wasn't like me sitting somewhere in a library reading Proust, you know. It was very cheesy. Like some of the stuff that you have to do to become enlightened is like, oh, really? Like I need to sit in a circle and listen? To, like whatever, like whatever it is. It's just very much not on brand. <laughs> I think that's really true. In my experience, that I work with a lot of business people who are scared of even the conversation about spirituality um, because they feel that it's, it's, it's too off-centre for them. And I thought that anybody could find that path and find that spirituality, but you're saying that you've got to be ready to be guided. You've got to be ready for that point in your life to accept that. I think it, it varies, but to me, like, if someone's not seeking... Think about how hard it is to find the answer, even when you are seeking. Like, I feel like I'm on my knees begging. I get upside down. I do asanas. I do somatic work. I do breath work. I do meditation. I sit in silence. I go to retreats. I do personal development work. Blah, blah, blah. Like, the list is endless. And even with all that effort, it's still not like... 
you know, it's not like I'm running through the fields naked with my tits in the air 24 hours a day, just being like, it's all being revealed to me at all times. Oh my God. You know, that's not, that's with that much effort. So if someone's like not even looking, that's not, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. If someone's just still using alcohol or sugar or sex or porn or whatever buffer they're using to cope with reality, those things are working. So until those things stop working and their life is starting to fizzle in a way that they can feel and sense, oh, this isn't working, they're not going to look outside of that for a solution. You speak about in your book about how you you have to find your soul. Your, your soul has to become your soulmate. And I think that most people have got a sense that there's something beyond this physical body and mind. Um, so how can somebody become mates with their soul? The soul isn't interested in regular life. So we have to create context for the soul to feel safe to come out. You know, lighting candles, sitting in ritual, finding a spiritual teacher, finding a spiritual group to do work with. It says in the Bible, when one or more are gathered in my name, I will come, right? And so it's like, I have not found that without the context being created. If I cannot sit in silence, if I cannot do ritual, if I cannot, and I'm not talking about ayahuasca, I'm talking about completely stark, cold, sober rituals, Um, If I can't journal, if I can't make the effort to get on my knees and pray, if I can't do those things, then the soul doesn't feel safe to come into my life. When I do make tiny little shifts, okay, I'll sit for, you know, if you're new listening to this, I'll sit for 10 minutes in meditation. I'll sit for two minutes. I have two-minute meditations that I send to my clients. I'm like, just do this a couple times a day, like anything you can do. The soul is resonant to requests and to efforts. It feels those things. And when we make those efforts, I feel like the soul becomes softer and says, all right, okay, well, I'll come in, you know, I'll enter. And then it starts guiding our lives. If you have a soul guiding your life, you already know your life is ridiculously easier. So you never go back once you've had that. But you first got to get a taste. You got a taste of what, a, what it's like to have your soul actually governing. I would say, like, have you ever seen the movie Forrest Gump? You know, and, and notice, like, Forrest Gump is, he's got a mental disability. So he's not fully, like, capable of functioning in reality and like a normal person. But I would say that his character is represent, representative of what happens when a soul is 100% present We may not have physical disabilities or mental disabilities, but believe you me, having a personality is a handicap. And if you don't know how to make your personality your bitch, your personality will handicap you. What happens when you let your soul run your life is everything is easy. You are accidentally an investor in Apple at the early stages. You win every ping pong tournament you enter, you accidentally save lives because you just think that's the right thing to do and you're really nice and generous and kind and amazing father and a great son and a wonderful, you know, partner to Jenny and so on and so forth. So I think I would I would direct people to look at what kind of life they really want and who they really want to be. And I would say, well, how is that going for you? Like, do you think on the broad scheme of things, that your life is easy and you're a powerful manifester of everything you dream of and you're a good friend and a good lover and a good partner and an active participant in creation in this life. And if their answer is no, I would say, well, then it's it's not happening. You're not doing that. It's possible. Like, this is possible and that's possible. You get to to choose. You know, if you want to live a life that's difficult and filled with pain and difficulty all the time and where the scales are not 51% joy and gratitude, that's on the table. It's very easy. It's much easier to live a life where you're just miserable and complaining about everything all the time. People talk about hitting rock bottom, but for me, your story is, is probably the most extreme that I've heard. And yet that you talk about having no anger or bitterness about that trauma and that it doesn't make us a bad person because bad things happen to us. And you also talk about responsibility and the fact that it's we're not responsible for those things happening, but we are responsible for what we do about them. 
So I just wonder if you could talk to us about that approach to life. Yeah. I mean, I would say it's not that I don't have anger. I do have anger and I have practices to deal with anger. My anger sometimes is about how painful my childhood was. But sometimes it reveals itself as something present tense. So something might happen in my life where I feel deeply angry. But when I do the work around it, I see that that anger isn't present. It's tied to an early wound from when I was very small. And I, I no longer fight anger. I, don't, I allow anger. There's nothing wrong with my humanness today. I'm an ugly mortal being who is dying, who is vain, who is deeply flawed, who has negative thoughts, all the things. So in terms of answering your question, like I just live a life where I make the correct effort so that at least 51% of me is in a state of positivity and right action. And to me, even 51, if we tip the scales just enough, right? Some days it might be higher. Some days it's 73% or 99%, whatever. But to, I don't go below 51%. Like, even if I'm going to go dark, even if I'm going to get depressed for a few minutes or an hour, those feelings, they're allowed so much as I know I can return to my practices and return to the reverie of gratitude, to the reverie of wonder, and curiosity, and also always asking, how is this serving me? How is what's happening before me that's making me angry or sad or upset right now? How is it working to make things better? The main theme of your book, Biet, is about, um, that it, well, what it's called, Don't Just Sit There. So it's about how you bring uh, spiritual life into a, a, the practical world and one of the one of the laws the first law is about the the law of divided attention so how how what what is divided attention and how can people start practicing that immediately yeah so divided attention is my favorite meditation tool because it can be used anywhere and you can practice it by simply dividing your attention so right now we can do it right as we sit here. We'll be breathing and noticing that we're breathing. And then we'll be looking at the screen. If you're listening to this podcast audio, you're just listening to the sounds, listening to the sounds around you and the sound of my voice, sound of all of our voices. And with another attention, you feel your seat. Your butt is sitting on a chair or perhaps a bench wherever you're seated. And with another attention, take in the periphery of the beauty of the space you're in, the sunlight, the soft sheets or white or colored walls around you, paintings, artifacts, incense, whatever's around you. And I want you to just breathe. And try to do all of those things at the same time. Feel your seat, feel your breath, hear the sounds, and see the periphery of the room. And with a final attention, this is the key of divided attention, float above yourself like a cameraman or a director, like Kubrick or, you know, Tarkovsky, one of the masters, and see yourself from above, like a character in a film about you. What do you look like? The bridge of your nose, the clothes you're wearing. And just see if you can do all of those things at the same time. Breath, periphery of the room, gazing at something beautiful in front of you, feeling your seat, and now seeing yourself from above. And just notice if that changes things. You can do that while you're driving. You can do that while you're having sex with your partner. You can do that while you're scrambling eggs in the morning. You really can do it any time. And I find that that is a way more effective form of presence than fixated attention, right? So, Danny, I could, like, look at you right now and just be like, wow, like, him, and focusing 100% on you. And while that may be fun because you're lovely, but it doesn't promote presence. Presence is looking at you and how wonderful you are, but also seeing myself, never forgetting that 
we are both here and that there is a third party involved that is a witness to both of us being here or Lisa, same with you, right? We are all here together with something. There's something else going on here. I love that. Could you tell me a bit about your view on money? Because that's a question that comes up from people that we work with and a lot of people would equate success with financial resources and I'm really interested in your take on that because you believe that wealth is is good um which is yes. which is great and it's and it, it, exactly and you talk about money being in a form of energy so could you just explain about your your thoughts about wealth everybody's different with what they're looking for in life right so in terms of like your personal satisfaction as a human being whoever's listening you may be satisfied with a one bedroom flat in new york city you may be satisfied with a dog you got at a shelter you may be satisfied with taking the subway you may be satisfied like you don't everybody's different with what they're looking for in terms of their day-to-day ambrosic experience but for some of us we have a deep deep yearning for high level earning and for creation right like we get really excited when we think about interior decoration or purchasing of real estate or some people want to buy a yacht or an island for that matter right the just kind of list goes on with what you could create with money um and again there's a personal satisfaction one can be very excited and satisfied by someone else's interior decoration or someone else may feel oh well, i want to be the one to do this interior decorating or someone may feel i'm pers- perfectly satisfied going to see a film at the cinema house someone else may feel well i need $40,000 to shoot my own film in italy or whatever vision they have right so you have to feel into your own life into your soul and ask yourself who am i what did i come to this planet to do what lights me up and what level of financial abundance makes me feel good when i first started doing this work i had no money i had nothing i didn't i earned i think i earned maybe a thousand dollars a month or something something insane maybe fifteen hundred dollars a month like i don't know how i survived i mean i survived by shoplifting and like having friends who paid for me for stuff i think but like i barely i just barely had any money at all and my rent at that time was like 400 bucks a month and um and i remember just feeling when i started doing the work i started feeling into where i was going and i could feel that i was going to become very wealthy but there was no evidence of that anywhere i didn't have the networks i hadn't gone to an ivy league school i knew nothing about business i had never read a business book i knew nothing about money or stocks or finances or bank accounts nothing 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 and so i just sat and i started to feel the feelings of wealth of success both my career success and what i was going to create in the world in terms of art and spirituality and literature and reaching people through whatever mediums but then i also started to see the money and i saw specific numbers now this amount will come in and that's what people will pay me and this is what i will earn in a year and so on and i could feel the feeling of where i was going now i think that's key for anyone who's listening like you have to feel it now you have to be in gratitude for where you are so i was like in gratitude for new york city subways in gratitude for and back then crazy shit started to happen i remember walking i was in whole foods one day and maybe this will sound silly to some listeners i don't know but i was in whole foods and i looked down and i saw money and i was like oh wow cash and i picked it up and it was $200 and i mean who the fuck finds $200 on the floor of a whole foods like i nobody did no one and i don't even today you know as someone with a lot of money i don't go around finding $200 and then back then when i was really in that spiral of feeling i found $15 on the sidewalk i would find cash everywhere i go one time i was in the bathroom i found a gift card to anthropology for like 200 bucks i just kept finding gifts It was like the universe was saying to me you're going the right direction just keep going and the secret is to both feel grateful for where you are what you have what i had then was like a one bedroom flat in a shit neighborhood in new york city i had a subway metro card 
and I had friends and I had good looks and I had talent. That's, but that's pretty much all I had. And I just was like, oh, it feels good to be me, you know, and I just let it happen. But then I also had a clear vision. I journaled. I met with people and did vision groups around where I was going. And I have manifested everything I have set to and more that since the writing that I did. And the numbers change as we grow, right? Like as soon as you make, you know, whatever, a million dollars a year, you're like, oh, gotta make $8 million a year. You know what I mean? Like those are the, that's how humans are just not, we're not ever going to stop. We're always evolving. It's not a matter of greed. It's a matter of deliciousness. Like, it's like, oh, well, that was fun. Let's have some more fun, you know? Because Lobster Brain as well is about exploding that myth that just because you are, you come into this world in a certain place or a certain space, it doesn't mean to say that you have to stay there. So, are you saying there that you have to be actively involved in making those decisions to to have more, to be surrounded by more abundance? I think you do. I think you have to have a very clear vision of and hear the whispers from inside, right? So if I said today, I want to be a billionaire, I want to create a product that's so amazing, blah, 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 that I'm like the new Elon Musk or whatever, that would be a personality talking because I don't actually think I'm going to make a billion dollars in this lifetime and I don't feel intuitively that I meant to or even need to. And th there's a great difference between me listening to what I'm worth, what my value is and what God or universe wants to give me and being like, yes, I'm ready to receive eight million dollars or X amount of million, whatever. It's the big difference between listening and a big difference between telling what I want. Me sitting down and being like, well, I want a billion dollars and I want this and I want that. That's just me being a petulant child and there's no reward in that. But when you meditate and you pray and you journal and you listen, the information is given. It's given. And then you, you know, you can accept it or not, but the numbers are real. Mm -hmm. They're real for your weight. They're real for your life expectancy. They're real for your bank account. They're all there. It's all in, in there. I feel that just that's one area with money that people don't want to talk about as much or they feel that there's a, there's a shame about it or a greed when you say you need a certain level of wealth in your life. I think you talk about building the household, that you've got to be able to have that level in order for you to go on and do great work and, and discover your purpose. You can't do that when you are, you know, you can't make rent or you, you can't pay for the, the subway. Yeah, I mean, you can. Like I said, everyone has their own what they're willing to tolerate, but it's easier to pursue enlightenment and to share at a level of like effectiveness, right? I don't think Shakespeare or Rumi or, you know, people who really have created effect in my life as conscious beings, Rudolf Steiner, etc. these people were not scrambling for rent. They were focused on what they were creating in the, in the world. Yeah, I noticed that you're you're very confident, and a lot of people uh, don't have your confidence. Like, for example, earlier you said that you're you're very sure that you're going to touch the hearts of millions of people. Where where does this confidence come from? It's just memory. I don't believe in time, so I'm confident because I really do remember the future. And when you really, 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 really relax, and I use breath work to relax. And I use meditation to relax. When you really relax, there's a certain level of confidence that comes from relaxation. Because we're only not confident or insecure when we're tensed up and stressed. Oh, I want, I want that. I want to, oh, because then as soon as you want something and as soon as you get tight about it, that's when the little devil comes in and is like, you'll never have that. <laughs> like there's this voice and so I've grown used to I have that voice and it tells me I'll fail at everything I try and here's the thing it's like it can tell me that till the cows come home if I'm relaxed and taking the next right action everything is unfolding very beautifully but if when I get tense and I'm like you know what doesn't matter how many actions I take it seems nothing ever works out when I go that direction it's like it's just gonna go down I already know. I have the capacity in me to totally destroy my life, 
to destroy everyone's ability to be reached by my work. I have the capacity to ruin my book sales, ruin my everything. But it all comes from this decision. Am I going to show up as the person who reminds people of how great they are? Or am I going to show up as like a weak little bitch of that voice inside my head that's telling me I'm a total loser? It's up to me how I, sh you know, what I do with that voice. When you say you remember the future, what does that mean? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I just take all I have always felt like I've seen my life very clearly and um, I could feel sometimes I'm off in certain ways like I thought this kid was going to be a son found out it was a daughter I was a little bit freaked out when I found that I was like wait a minute <laughs> I'm pretty sure I have a son so that I don't know I don't know what to do with stuff like that but when it comes down to, we still haven't seen this kid. It could be a boy. It's very <laughs> unlikely, but could be. It still could be. But it was just, um, I just see things. And I've been right many, many times. I've seen visions of my own future, glimpses, I would say, glimpses. Because I do believe that the present moment is all time. So as soon as you get fully present, which I'm not 100% of the time, just in case anyone's watching and being like, wow, she's really coming down the holy high mountain of perfect presence. Like, no, I just know how to enter presence. I also get fucking kicked out of there. Like as if, like as if a big buffalo comes in with a hoof and just kicks me right out of presence. That's happens to me all the time, all the time. Welcome to enlightenment. You get kicked out of presence by a giant buffalo. And then you got to fucking find your way back. I just happen to know how to get back. I don't need LSD. I don't need mushrooms. I don't need ayahuasca. I don't need a shaman. I don't need shit. I know exactly how to get back. And that is my secret. That's the secret sauce. I know how to fucking get back. And so I see the future. I see the past. I see the present moment in the present. And I think anyone who's ever entered the present moment knows what I'm talking about. There's something in there where lies don't get in. There's no lie inside the present moment. Can you see your future, Lisa? <laughs> well, I, I have just been able to see myself on top of my head sitting in here recording this and the bridge of my nose, so it's a good start. <laughs> 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 yeah, it makes me think about when you speak about, you know, being in the present and then get, getting kicked out by the buffalo. It makes me think about um, a few spiritual enlightened teachers who kind of claim to be in this enlightened state all the time and then the way they behave away from that is not indicative of being in that state so i like the fact that you're honest and vulnerable and open about it what what do you think is going on with these teachers who pretend to be these enlightened beings well i couldn't tell you you know because i'm like i'm not around enlightened people 24 hours a day so i i couldn't tell you truthfully whether they really are you know, enlightened as they wipe their ass, enlightened as they get a C-section, enlightened as they, you know, find out they have terminal cancer. I have no fucking idea, you know. What I do know is that um, I am enlightened when I'm on a stage answering questions for a large group of people. So for those people that you're speaking about, I have seen them on a large stage answering questions. And I do believe they are enlightened during those moments. And I feel they're transmitting something very true. Whether they're rude to their waiter later on in the day or they have a, you know, a little, I just had a little spout with my husband about incandescent Christmas lights versus LED Christmas lights. That happened. It was, there was yelling. There was huffing and puffing. It lasted for, you know, two minutes. And it was real. And, and, and I'm enlightened. And I want to share with the world that that's what enlightenment looks like. I know both sides. I am both sides. I'm not immune. So I cannot speak for those people who I know we will leave unnamed. I know that some people I have met, and I'm so deeply touched by their warmth and their love and light. But I do also believe some of those people are now dead. And I am 43 years old, and I think there's something coming in this new age right now. It's, we're on the precipice of it. It's very feminine and very um, humbled, and it's different. And I don't think that people 20, 30 years ago, the teachers that taught us, I don't think they had the, the pleasure of 
pulling their pants down and showing everyone their ass in the way that I get to today and that you get to. There's something that we today are getting a, a new gift to share with the world. So, Beat, you know, I talk to people who are extremely successful in, in whatever space they're in, and yet there still seems to be, and now more ever now, I think, than before the pandemic, a feeling that they're looking for a deeper purpose than the thing that they're very successful at. And it's it's frightening, isn't it? Because that has become that person's identity. That's how they show up. That's how people perceive them. But there's something else. So how do people like that, or people who maybe don't have success even yet, how do they find the purpose if they're not sure what it is, but there is a calling there? Well, it's definitely different answers for both of those parties. If you haven't found your purpose or your success yet, then you're bound to think it's the thing, right? There's a knowing like Andy Warhol once said, or I think someone in that genre of people once said, I know that I can't gain happiness from success, but I'm, I'm going to go find out for myself. And that really moves me. Like I, cause I, if I hadn't found wealth and success and all that, I don't think I would be able to speak on behalf of those things. I can't say, oh, well, it's not those things because well, how the fuck do you know if you're living in a tenement in Queens and you have no money and you've never done anything that matters to anybody outside yourself and you're hiding out in your bedroom, then you don't even know. But I know, and I can say, it's not there. It's somewhere, it's both, you know? In terms of people who have found their success and they're still searching, that's the people I work with. Those are my students. And because they've already found that that's not it, and then they're like, wait, so then what are the tools, pathways? How do I actually experience the fullness and richness of life? Because the yacht isn't doing it for me anymore. So it's like, all right, well, listen up. Here's the, here's the techniques. We're going to go through them. And then just see, you're the fucking guinea pig. You know what I mean? Like, if the yacht was it, you did it. You, you got the yacht. Like, how's it going for you? You know, it's like, I'm sure the yacht was great for two weeks. I'm sure it was. Was it? Or having sex with some really hot model on the yacht or, you know, whatever it is you wanted to do on that yacht and you did it. Like, I'm happy for you. But at the end of the day, there's something else going on here. And like we talked about earlier, like until this 3D space is not enough for you anymore. There's a great scene in The Matrix where the bad guy, there's like a bad guy, I forget his name, the actor, but he goes back into The Matrix often and he's sitting there with one of the detectives from The Matrix and he's like eating lobster and he's like, I don't care if this is fake. I love it here. Like I love, the, you know, I'll take it. And But to me, there's something so beautiful about like Neo or whatever his name was, like sitting there on that ship eating oatmeal. Because when you first wake up, that's all you get. You just get oatmeal, you know, and then you got to go figure it out from there. And then that's what's, I mean, I'm not eating fucking oatmeal. I mean, I eat oatmeal every day for breakfast, <laughs> but I'm saying like I get lobster in my reality today, but I'm not living in a matrix. I'm living in real 3D, gushy, yucky, I'm doing it all. What have you learned from motherhood so far? And, and uh, are you looking forward to, other than the C-section, the, the new arrival? Motherhood is a total fucking shock to the system. I, I never knew I could hate something that much in terms of like the process of like, being sleep deprived, having my freedom taken away, not being able to leave the house without getting a nanny, like the endless bickering and restructuring that had to happen within my marriage as a result of that shock to our marriage of, we were together for, I don't know, 12 years before we ever had a kid. So we had this whole relationship and then all of a sudden this bomb was went off inside it. Once I got through those three years of resentment and and anguish, which by the way are all paired with ecstasy of holding a baby and the yumminess of watching this beautiful, perfect light being develop and being more in love than you've ever been, like feeling like almost like you're going to throw up at all times because you're so obsessed. <laughs> Once I got past those first three years, 
I fell so deeply in love, not only with my kid, but also with the woman I had become, because I am not the same person I was three, four, now four years ago, my first, not my first daughter, but my second daughter is four. And I feel so at ease now. I love, love, love being a mother. I don't feel resentful about making her lunches. I don't feel resentful about tucking her in. I don't feel resentful that I have limited scheduling availability as a result of this. All I want to do is just be this person's mom. It's such a pleasure. And I just am sharing all of that because for anyone who's listening who might be about to be a mom or is a mom and it wants to kill their child and themselves. <laughs> like it's just super normal to go through that process because the person you were before you become a mom is dead and they're never coming back. So you need to regrow a whole new being body to become a real mother, which I have done. And I love it. And I can't wait for this new girl to come and to meet her. And I'm even willing to do a C-section to have this <laughs> delicious experience and then I get to not sleep and feel like I'm tripping on acid and woo, I'm ready I'm ready for all of it it's so cool I think there's nothing greater um, on the planet than being a parent that's made me feel so emotional because it takes me right back to mine and um, mine are 21 and 23 and I changed overnight and I had a new confidence as well when I became a mother just all made sense to me and it's the greatest gift it's wonderful it's the greatest and it's the worst part is you can't explain it because if you were to tell someone who's not a parent how hor horrifying and difficult it is they would be deterred from doing it so the only thing I want to say to people is like doesn't matter where you are doesn't matter if you think you're ready, don't think you're ready, just fucking do it because it's the best, it's the best thing. But the only thing I would say is the reason it's the best thing is because I kept my own self. I didn't give up on my career. I didn't give up on my dream. I didn't give up on my visions. I didn't give up on my sex life. I didn't give up on my luxury and delight, my, sol my solitude, my alone time. All those things are primary, I believe, for me being the kind of mother that my children need. My children need to see someone who's thriving. So I keep that as like the, the goal and the, the reality. So I think our listeners are going to learn so much from what you've said today, Biet, and we're, we're so grateful to have you on here. And one final question that we like to ask all of our guests is, what has been the most beautiful moment of your life so far? One moment. I wouldn't say there's one, but I think the first thing that comes to mind is finding the state of enlightenment without any drugs and actually being fully present here on earth. And uh, the awe that I felt when I saw that that was possible and that I was actually capable of co-creating that state with the universe is something that I turn back to always in moments of darkness. I just think to myself, well, that's possible here. So if that's possible here, then I know I'm in the right place. Thanks, Biet. That was amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. And good luck with the baby. That was such a great conversation and it made me laugh because as soon as we got onto the video um, call with her, she immediately sat down and put her great big hat on and sat cross-legged and, and she was just so immediately open. Felt like I'd known her a long time um, straight away in actual fact. And it was just that kind of freedom that she gave us and gives people to find spirituality in their own way and to have it mean what it means to them it's not a prescriptive one size fits all which for me makes it feel really accessible and really modern and relatable particularly you know we're in a commercial world a lot of us and we have to put bread on the table we can't sit there meditating all day and and not cracking on with life and she gives you the permission to crack on with life but just do that with purpose I thought it was amazing yeah, she does give permission to do that. And I think she brings her practices and her skills into how you bring that, that bring the two together. So how do you live a full life and be spiritual, whatever that means? 
you asked her about money, Lisa, because she speaks about money in her book. And, and I, I thought that was really interesting and a really good lesson really about money because money, there's a lot of ideas in people's minds about what money is. So what did you take from her take on money? Well, she's saying it's not the spirituality and, and money and, and being driven by financial wealth are not mutually exclusive. So you can be an extremely spiritual person with a great purpose and still be loaded. I mean, she's not making any criticism of people who love that energy. But what I also thought was completely realistic, and this is what you don't hear very often from people in the spiritual world, I don't think, in my experience, is the fact that she's saying you've got to be able to keep house. You know, there's a basic level that you've got to be at in your life, which is self-responsibility. You've got to show up in the world in order to have that platform to build on from there. And she'd made that decision that she was going to have to get out of that place and start to earn. Well, she manifested the money. She started finding it on the street, didn't she? Picking, picking money up. And then she realized that that was what she also refers to as the whispers. So, you know, we all have those. We hear those whispers in our own systems, don't we? And it's about listening to those. But what she's saying is the fact that you have to live as a human being in modern society and that, you know, you're probably not going to find the true sense of purpose without showing up in that society um, and kind of sitting in, in a corner meditating all day. It's how you bring that spirituality into the real world and, and do good and impact people and then have the best life you can have. Yeah, the, the thing that will really stay with me with Biet is, I think it's in the title of her book, which is a best-selling book, and it's called Don't Just Sit There. And, you know, for me, Biet lives a full, full life, and it's a spiritual life, uh, but she's not just sitting on a yoga mat all day meditating. And I think she's a badass, she's a real badass, and lives life fully. And that's what's going to really stay with me. I love that, Danny. I think the one thing that really impacted me, and you, you do see this, you probably see it in yourself, you see it in colleagues, is the fact that you just can't go on that journey of purpose or self-discovery. You can't be dragged there. You've got to be ready to do that work. You've got to know that you're at the place where she talks about that she was bulldozed by heroin, for example. I mean, it's not always heroin for people, but it can be addiction to work or it can be, you know, continually getting yourself in a bad personal relationship. It's only when you get to that point and you think, no, you know, I'm ready for this journey. I mean, you helped me on that myself eight years ago. I had to be ready to go and do that work with you. And, and I really get that. You know, she's saying you, you, you have to be ready to open that door and, and go for it. Danny, so the thing also that really, really stuck with me was Biet saying that she can remember the future. So what did you make of that? <laughs> yeah, I think uh, it comes back, Lisa, to her, her absolute confidence in herself and in her knowing. But we, we live in a world that's kind of dominated by this idea of linear time. So there's the present moment and then there's the past. But I think in certain circles, if you open yourself up, you can be more aware of the future as well. And it's not actually linear as we, as it comes across. So it seems like Biet is in touch with things that may have, may happen in the future, just in the same way that we're in touch with things that happened in the past. And yeah, and yeah, she, she just lives her life pretty fully in, in that recognition. What's going to happen in your future? <sighs> That is a million dollar question. I need to go back to meditating. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, though, really, really, I think it's important that I, I do want to mention this is the conversation about motherhood. And I know there might be people listening who, you know, having children's not for them or, you know, very sadly, they it is for them, but they can't have children. And, and I know that's that's a hard conversation. But she said that she changed. She's since being a mother, she's a completely different person than she was before having children. And I could really relate to that because I felt when I had my two and they're close together, when I was a young mum, I felt like I had this confidence and identity that it was so powerful. And, um, and you know, I do see my life in, in two different ways. The fact that I've, I have so much more confidence, so much more belief in, in life since I've had the kids. And, you know, obviously she, since we've recorded with Biet, she's had a second 
daughter just very recently and you can just see again you know how how ecstatic she is to have another baby in her life the other thing that i think that i really loved about that lisa and you just reminded me of it was the fact that she's so open about the fact that motherhood is really difficult you know she loved being a mother and she also hated being a mother in that first year and i think for all the mothers listening out there sometimes it's hard to recognize that and to accept it and to voice it and to hear somebody like Biet speak about it i think it's really helpful because you know it's a great experience and it's also really difficult mm. and that's why we love our kids so much because it is so bloody difficult <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening to this episode of lobster brain lobster brain will be back on march the 16th and please remember to follow lobster brain so you get it straight into your feed every other thursday see you next time when you're going to hear from phil neville phil is a former manchester united everton and england footballer and he then became the manager of the Lionesses and is now the head coach of Inter Miami in the MLS. In the next episode, you're going to hear how to go, in his own words, from being a soldier to a general when you're not quite ready to be the general.